0: Happy Advent from Horror Nerds at Church. There is a schedule change after this podcast was recorded, meaning that the next episode is not the special Christmas surprise or midnight kiss, but actually Friday the 13th retrospective with guest co-host Abel Arroyo Traverso. So come back for that next week, and then stay tuned for our special Christmas surprise episode and midnight kiss.
1: Content warnings for this episode include occasional sanest language, sexual assault discussion children religious trauma and police violence as depicted in the film
0: to Horror Nerds at Church, a ridiculously queer podcast where you take a deep dive into a horror film and talk about what it can teach us about God, the Bible, and each other. My name is Pace, and I am the strange lack of elves that are in this iteration of Santa. We don't see any elves.
1: And I'm John Michael, uh, or JM, depending on how many syllables you can afford this year for Christmas. Um, I'm the coworker who's so glad that they left the Christmas party really early, uh because as you'll find out um that was a bad idea to stay late
0: exactly right um so we have a special guest as our co-host today uh as you know um if you've been listening along that joe has taken a break for the rest of the season so thank you so much for being here jm uh jm is a friar in the order of ecumenical franciscans a spiritual director a poet and a gardener they love discussing how the use of Monsters in fiction can be a powerful way to explore trauma and social forces that feel bigger than any one of us. How are you doing?
1: I'm, I'm doing okay. I had actually had a really great job interview earlier today, so I'm still riding that high.
0: Awesome. That's really cool. It's uh, still November when we're recording this, but this is going to come out in time for the week before Christmas. So, I, I don't know. I feel like already kind of in the Christmas spirit because of the way that like uh the stores have already played started their christmas music starbucks has already released their christmas beverage lineup and stuff so i don't feel strange doing this. i mean i know i know so many of the pastor types i'm not sure if you're one of these jam or not are like very much like anti-christmas until at till um the four weeks of advent get their due but like i feel like enjoying christmas and the hope and expectation for the 24th is kind of, and 25th is part of advent so like i'm not as grinchy about it i don't know where you fall on that spectrum
1: yeah <laughs> i you know it's funny um I, I think that there's space for both right there's space for practice that has to do with with waiting and humility and and all that great stuff um and that there's also room to be like oh my goodness the gingerbread lattes are back at our local coffee house. And I'm super excited (laughs) about that because I'm kind of a geek for weird seasonal flavors. Um, And, uh, you know, I I appreciate the fact that that's one of those ways that you can kind of tell that you're moving your way through the year. Um, And the early Christmas lights people have um, fired up their lights uh, in our neighborhood. And you know what? It looks pretty. I like it. So I think that there's perhaps a little bit too much anxiety about early Christmas, Um, though we did used to have a Hobby Lobby here and God, they would put out their stuff sometime in July. Um, That would get on my nerves a little bit.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, geez. I mean, there is a thing to be said about Christmas in July, but I mean, like when you just start the christmas season in july and just keep it going through december that's a little much well i actually have this crazy
1: horror movie idea for like a backwards time travel thing where where um christmas keeps moving backwards through the calendar like like to july to june to may to april goes past easter march and then when it finally gets all the way to um december 31st um that like that the apocalypse happens right because Christmas will have circled all the way around the calendar back to where it's supposed to be
0: (laughs) oh I kind of really love that (laughs) that's that's awesome um I don't know how I think you and I just met through social media stuff because of being in a lot of the same ELCA kind of circles and stuff I know we've met in person once maybe when there's a ELM retreat like Mm -hmm. in Um, Berkeley but I think that's the only time we met in person but we've but it's it's one of those like there's it's so common in especially queer communities to have so many like very close internet friends that you don't see that frequently but like they're still you're you still very feel very close to them and like have a very good friendship so it's like so I'm glad to call you one of my internet friends even though we (laughs) haven't gotten to meet as much in person
1: Yeah. yeah no, right. I, I love that whole idea of, um, I think I saw a meme somewhere that called it like pocket friends. These are my pocket friends. I carry them around in my pocket. I pull out my phone and I, I check in with my friends and make sure they're okay. And then delight when their lives are going well.
0: Awesome. I, yeah. I, I like that too. Pocket friends. I'm going to have to steal that from whomever created that meme. Yeah. Not me. So uh, don't, don't credit me. Yeah. <laughs> um as far as announcements for the rest of the season we're finishing up we have one more official episode on our main feed coming out uh next week uh which is midnight kiss we're gonna have river cook needham on as the guest co-host for that so it's right in time for new year's eve it's a gay slasher really fun but um we also are going to have a surprise present to our main feed that will drop on Christmas Day. I won't spoil the surprise about what episode that will be, but there's going to be a special Christmas Day episode drop into your feed as well. So if you celebrate Christmas the way, I don't like to say it's supposed to be, but the way it has traditionally been celebrated over 12 days, you will have a few episodes to help carry you over, especially if you're able to take off work or anything. Um, between Christmas and New Year's, which I know some folks get to, but not everybody, but um, so hopefully that will help tie the season over and also give you something till season three starts. Uh, I'm still thinking season three is going to start in uh, March or April, so around there, but don't worry, we're still going to be releasing stuff on Patreon and. Um, for our patreon supporters three episodes a month there at least sometimes more and we'll still do our mini-sodes once a month on the main feed so uh before we get into the movie this is a question we ask all of our uh guests if you have a real life church horror story it can be a funny story it can be a scary story it can be about supernatural stuff we had one person tell a story about a ghost locking her in a church bathroom which i just find hilarious uh, you'll, you'll have to go back listen to that one. That's um, uh, Friday the 13th, Part 7. But if there's anything that fits for that, uh, it, go for it.
1: Yeah, um, my, my, it's a little bit on the silly side, but uh, my favorite um, kind of spooky story connected to church life was about a missing body um and oh, it was it was a, just a comedy of errors where one mistake was made after another after another um and uh, a gentleman who had gone through hospice at home um and I'd visited him several times there died at home and his instructions were that he was supposed to be cremated and then have a funeral and be buried um which you know is nothing particularly spectacular except that yeah, yeah. it just so happened that this guy died while the medical examiner was out of town on a golf vacation. And the tricky thing is in the state of Massachusetts, if someone has died at home, you have to get a medical exam before they'll let you cremate the body. Uh, And they want to make sure that people aren't just, you know, murdering their family members in the secret of their homes (laughs) and then cremating them to hide all the evidence and having a quick funeral to dispose of the remains. Uh, So normally this is pretty... You know, uh, standard affair, the medical examiner gets possession of the body. They look over the body. And they're like, yep, this person died of cancer, just like we thought. That person was out of town. So they called Boston and the Boston person was out of town. And so the only person left was this retired doctor who uh, had some hearing issues and didn't work very many hours uh, in the morgue. He was practically impossible to get a hold of. So we're waiting on the doctor, waiting on the doctor. While all of that drama is unfolding, the announcements about the death and the funeral plan and all of these sort of normal mourning activities go forward, except that the funeral home is not coordinating at all with either the crematorium or with the medical examiner. So I get to uh, the calling hours for this gentleman, to the wake, and the funeral director walks up to me with this sheepish look on his face. And he says, Mike's not here. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean he's not here? He's dead. <laughs> like, where, 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 where did he go? <laughs> and, and, right. and so, you know, I mean, you know, is this, is this the beginning of a zombie outbreak? What's the deal? Um, anyway, so only the widow and the funeral director and I knew that they had hastily rushed an empty rental casket into this room and just covered it with sprays of flowers and put up all these photographs and all that, and there's nothing in the casket. Um, Oh, my goodness. And so we're in there, and we conduct this, this heartfelt wake for this guy who's died. There's no body, and no one can tell us where exactly the body is. Right. I mean, like this is this is the way most horror movies start. Right. 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 (laughs) Right? We thought he was dead, but then he wasn't. Um, Anyway, they finally get the uh, medical examiner to sign off. They rush the body over to the crematorium um, and assure me that everything is going to be fine. But the next morning we have this 1030 funeral. And it's like 10:25. There's no body. 10:27, 10:30, 10:35. Still no body. And I'm thinking, all right, we already have faked one thing with an empty casket. Uh, at some point, someone's going to need to answer for this missing body. Um, yeah. And I think at 10:37. So you know, only seven minutes late, but like what felt like a huge amount of time in my in my world. This hearse comes sure. <laughs> flying down the road and squeals to a stop in front of the church. Like, you know, the dead guy's in a hurry and <laughs> screeches to a stop. The funeral director jumps out an open body, and I just look at him and I mouth the words, Is he here? And I get this big double thumbs up. He's here. <laughs> and he swings open the door and pulls out the urn that has his ashes. And brings them inside. And from that point forward, it was a very normal, boring funeral. Uh, but um, uh, that's my shout out to Michael, uh, a very special gentleman and his family, uh, the man who missed his own wake and was late for his
0: funeral. <laughs> I love that. I, I mean, first of all, I feel like, of course, there's we can take a theological like discussion about like, oh, there's actually not a body here. And yet, there is something still kind of interesting and theological about having a wake and potentially even a funeral without a physical body. And that also happens for people who um, no body is found, or they're not their body is donated to science and stuff. Sometimes you can have a funeral without a, a body, stuff. So, so, but I just find that like such a such a wild story. How, how did the? So it sounds like the widow was able to roll with it. Hopefully. Um, yeah, I,
1: I can't tell if it was that she had a good sense of humor or that she was just so in shock. And and I think just almost put everything on pause, right? Like, I'm just going to wait until someone tells me, yes, they have located him. <laughs> <laughs> and then that, and that it's all going to be okay. Um, I think also the fact that we just sort of said, all right, we are we are faking it. Right. We're going to we're going to pretend that this is this is all very normal, that there's nothing weird going on here. Um, You know, I I suppose uh, as someone who enjoys a good, um, you know, sci-fi or scary movie, it would have been cooler if all of a sudden Mike had pulled up driving the hearse. Um, But uh, that would be a different story for a different day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I have a pastor friend who hit a hearse in part of a funeral procession right because the pastor typically goes behind the her so that was a fun um adventure story i'll see if i can have him tell that story in the podcast at some time <laughs> but anyway uh well thank you for sharing that story and thank you so much again for being here i guess we'll transition to the movie we are watching silent night deadly night it came out in november of 1984 briefly before it disappeared because of controversy which we'll get into um directed by charles e sellier jr and um what is, ha, have you seen this f- film before what's your first memory of this movie uh, the this
1: is the very first time i i saw this movie was to watch it in preparation for this show um part of that is uh, i didn't really get into this kind of horror or or into um thrillers and that sort of thing until i was a young adult um but I gotta say that all of the touchstones of the late '70s, early '80s, everything from the style points, the mullets, the uh, the old cars, um, the, the clothing, like all of it was very weirdly nostalgic, um, and yet off. And, and I and I don't know if that was intentional. Sometimes I I, I want to give creative types. You know, credit for more brilliance than maybe they're, they're actually expressing. <laughs> uh, if the fact that it felt like a, a slightly uh, off kilter version of that period of time um, was in fact kind of a way of getting into the, the, uh, the messed up main character, I don't know. Uh, but that was, that was very interesting to me. I was also shocked by the way that, because uh, I had to Google it while I was watching, like, where the hell are these songs coming from? There's all of these weird, <laughs> weird, weird Christmas pop songs, and I'm going. I remember Christmas pop songs from that era. These are not them. Where did these come from? And then found out that they were all, you know, for the most part, were composed for the movie for the score.
0: Uh, yeah, this is. I there. I love um, kind of late '70s, early '80s low budget slashers where they don't really feel like um, shelling out the money to licensed songs they just make up their own and it creates this very like Halloween the original Halloween 1978 is another one that infamously has made up songs that keep uh, reoccurring throughout the movie. But uh this is was also my first time watching this too. Like which is weird. I had seen so many of the other like Christmassy themed slashers like Black Christmas, which is a classic of course. Um and there's uh what silent night bloody night which is uh i believe a german film uh early slasher from the 70s so like yeah but this one i just never got around to and I, it's weird because it produced a whole franchise i think there's like six entries in it or something wow but Wow. let me tell you <laughs> this was this was <laughs> this was an adventure and i'm glad i went along for the ride it was weird I guess it's somewhat related. Uh, I've also always been
1: a big fan of the, um, the Krampus themed um, Christmas horror. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, that uh, a whole side of my family is from Eastern Europe. And so this idea of a Christmas monster, a Christmas devil um, who kind of works in tandem with Santa Claus. Uh, so St. Nick is there to bring rewards and Krampus takes care of the naughty children by stuffing them in a basket and taking them off to the woods. Um not a happy image at all <laughs> and a scary, scary, no, no. a scary, scary character, but, um, makes for a fun. Um, uh, don't usually watch stuff like that right at Christmas, but love to watch something like that, like in the early part of December in the lead up to Christmas.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that's another movie. I, I there's actually a few of them, I think. Right. But, um, I don't think I've seen any of the Krampus movies, but it is, they are on my list. I, I, have um I don't know if you are familiar with the vinyl pop figures made by Funko or whatever There was a brief period in time where I was collecting them and I got a I have a whole shelf of like horror themed um pops and one of them is a Krampus pop which I just love
1: that's awesome uh one of our it's a little too big to put on a tree but we usually hang it on a wall hook um we have a handmade Krampus uh, and uh, a local artist does these funny little furry, um, uh, Krampus ornaments and they're always doing something naughty. Uh, so like ours is holding on to like a little wooden nutcracker ornament and lighting it on fire.
0: Oh, I love that. That sounds so cute. Yeah. It's just fun to put um, something a little
1: twisted up for Christmas.
0: Yep. Yep. I feel, I feel like that's also one of the things, uh, I, I keep talking about like, um, bring bring this back to like queer things but i think think especially when it comes to holidays like there there's so much there's very much a need for a lot of queer folk to do a little bit of queering or nodding up or something to the holiday because otherwise hell are so you going to survive the holiday but um oh yeah yeah especially if you have to go in with um family of origin stuff which sometimes is great but oftentimes for queer folk it's not so
1: yeah, yeah, and if and if you're in a situation where, um, um, you have to try to split time right between chosen family celebration activities that might feel really, really, um, affirming and joyful, and uh, other kinds of activities that might not, um, to be able to kind of poke fun at the holiday itself is, I think, a healthy thing.
0: Yep, yep. Um, I guess what uh, that this kind of goes along with the whole theme of this movie, and we could talk and probably is a good transition to the controversy about the movie um so behind the scenes stuff this was one of those slashers the the holiday theme slashers that came out in the wake of halloween so once again that came out in 1978 and then there are movies like friday the 13th that came out um 1980 uh there there's the early 80s about thanksgiving i can't remember the name of that one this is like one of those and then of course april fool's day my bloody valentine all these holiday themed slashers this is among those it's not the first one to feature santa as a slasher but for some reason this is the first one that really the advertising campaign really struck a note with um american viewers to the point that the they were like national pta parent teacher association like started to demand that these advertisements featuring santa as a slasher be taken down uh and that they were inappropriate for children and were and and the whole nine yards about like how it's not family friendly how it's uh, all the complaints that get lobbied against the horror film industry in general but then you add this christmas war and christmas sheen on top of it too Mm. so um that they successfully got um Tristar Pictures to remove all the advertisement spots. Uh, And the film was released, uh, limited release, in November 9th, 1984, the same weekend as Nightmare on Elm Street but then a more wide release the following week. But within two weeks, it was out of all theaters because of these like national boycotts of the movie, because of how it's like distorting the view of um, Christmas and making children afraid of Santa and all this stuff. Hmm. So, um, and for that reason, like it wasn't officially released in the United Kingdom until 2009 when it came out on Blu-ray there. I'm of course you could get like bootleg or international copies, but like, uh, just just because of censor- censorship. Uh, also, there was a little bit of cut footage uh, for this movie that um, to prevent it from having a rating, a rated X on the Blu-ray. Uh, I think that footage was found, but not restored because it's not studio, it's not film quality anymore. Speaking the last little bit, I have. Oh, go ahead. No, no as I say, mm-hmm. speaking
1: of film quality, uh, uh, or studio quality film, um, I was shocked by some of the the really bizarre editing cuts um, in that in the the <laughs> version that I watched including some where it was really right. obvious that um, either a scene had been deleted and they just threw in some b-roll footage uh, because it would go from a bright well-lit scene to the same scene or the same set um, but it was grainy and it was dark and it was hard to make out what was going on and um, almost look like the the kind of footage that they take just for blocking, um, when yeah, when they're yeah. first kind of laying out a scene. I, it was just that the editing on this was fascinating to me because it it added to the the sense of like, am I going crazy as I'm watching this?
0: <laughs> right. Uh, I I love when there's kind of this, which I'm sure is unintentional, but this like meta nature to the quality of the film that makes us that our own sanity. Um originally though, this movie is gonna be called Slay Ride to the pun S L A Y (laughs) instead of S L I G H. So um but they change it to Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh that's all the behind the scenes background stuff I have. Uh anything else that you discovered or want to bring up at this point? Uh, just
1: now that you say that, was the song Silent Night in the film at all? I'm just I'm struggling to remember.
0: No and that is so weird. I'm like, I, I think that part of it was the studio may have changed the name like late in the production, so they. But like, I'm even so, I'm surprised that they didn't include it like once in there. It is very weird. Um, now I guess we'll get into the movie and do our run through. So we begin on Christmas Eve in 1971 as five-year-old Billy and his infant infant brother Ricky are taken to visit their grandfather in a nursing home by their parents. Billy is left alone with his seemingly nonverbal grandfather who suddenly turns to him and tells him that Santa punishes naughty children and will punish Billy too, so he better run if Santa visits. And I just, as an aside here, like, this is exactly like you're talking about with, like, the Krampus thing. Like, there's, it, it works in some culture to have this, like, it, it's already part of some cultures to have this thing, whereas, like, in this very, like, I don't know how to speak about American white culture aside from like bland and boring. Like Santa can only be pictured as this good jolly guy. Um, So I I just find it like, would that message have landed if this was in Eastern Europe? Perhaps not Um, the same way because it would have been expected, I think.
1: Yeah. There's even um, uh, images of um, Father Christmas from um, Russia where instead of the reindeer and the sleigh, uh, he rides on a polar bear um, and the whole idea is that uh, Santa, again, kind of splitting that role, but like the polar bear eats the naughty children and and St. Nick <laughs> gives um, um, treats to the good children. Uh, and so like that, that mythological vibe is, is pretty well embedded, e- even if all we want to think about here is the Coca-Cola Santa.
0: Yeah. 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 Um... So, so so, it's just interesting to me. I, I think that like th- this news that Santa can um, chase his bad children is like such a or like punishes bad children is so surprising to little Billy. Um, And even his parents say some like his mom's like, oh, your grandfather is just crazy or something like that on their way home. Uh, But the parents are stopped by a stranded Santa seemingly with car trouble. The santa shoots billy's dad and billy runs and hides in the bushes while watching the santa attempt to rape and then murder his mother uh, that was a bizarre opening to the film i just have to say
1: it, it, the um, perhaps the most distressing thing in all of it was the way that um, i don't think there was a lot of soundtrack backing to that scene there was just the screaming so the screaming of the parents and then once the parents were dead the screaming of the infant ricky in the car and like that's that was pretty unnerving um
0: yeah yeah um and then I, the movie in just picks up three years later it tells us uh we find billy and his brother ricky being raised in a catholic orphanage um He draws a violent drawing of Santa and a reindeer being murdered and is disciplined by a mother superior um, and told to go to his room. He then spies on a couple having sex, which brings back flashbacks of his mother's assault and murder. He is then violently punished and tied to his butt by a mother superior. Later, Santa visits the orphanage and Billy is forced to sit on Santa's lap, which, like holy consent, Batman do not force children to sit on anybody's lap especially strangers even if they are dressed up like the Coca-Cola Santa as James said but right. um not good uh and but like billy like clearly has chris has trauma around christmas like it's acknowledged openly by the adults of the nuns in this orphanage and yet like he's still being forced to sit on santa not cool um but he punches santa like no surprise there and then he runs to his room and cries in terror as presumably mother superior is going to punish him yet again uh and then it like so, so it's like it's weird i was not expecting this film to be like these vignettes of billy's life so we get like this first bit from when he was five and then it comes back three years later at eight and then like again it just abruptly ends and we now fast forward 10 years to see an adult billy who is like i have to say he is dressed super queer coated like with the rolled up shirt the <laughs> jeans like I-, I don't know if the costume designer or what like but like was getting inspiration from like Folsom in San Francisco or something but like or like w- what is it um uh Tom of Finland like it, it feels yeah. like he's out of one of these drawings it's not like leather but like just kind of like that like It's like a fire iron boy or something the... yeah yeah exactly and so I'm wondering if that's intentional. Um, probably not. But like to me, it was like, Billy is super queer. Uh, he gets a job at a toy store. Uh, come Christmas time, so this is a great idea, to put this person who has trauma around Christmas into a toy store near Christmas time. Uh, he starts to experience flashbacks of his parents' murther- murders. Uh, this increases when he has an erotic fantasy and imagines Santa killing him. And it worsens still when he is asked to dress up as Santa. And as he does so, he's terrorizing children as he does. But as an interesting commentary on how terrorized children are rewarded as well behaved. Like, everybody sees him, like, scaring these children into quiet submission. And they're like, oh, he's so good with kids. Yeah, that that <laughs> was <this>. distressing. <laughs> right? Um, and then at a Christmas party... So, JM, you're lucky you left this Christmas party early. (laughs) He sees one of his co-workers try to force himself onto another co-worker, and so he strangles him while still dressed as Santa. Then he kills the other co-worker, saying, Punishment is good, Pamela. It is good, as he stab. He then murders his boss with a hammer. He kills his final co-worker and then runs away. One of the nuns from the orphanage sees the aftermath at the shop and returns to the orphanage to get help, knowing that Billy is out there doing the killing.
1: Can I just break in here for a second? Because I, I think that's that pretty, this is one of those uh, cases where classic, classic horror trope, right? Which is that the the violent, um, the violent villain in the movie, um, one of the things that they're punishing um, is this failure to adhere to purity culture, right? That, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's just like all over these 80s um, slasher movies, you know, like the teenagers who have sex always die first. Right, um, and like being a virgin is a really good way to survive um, to the end of the movie, um, which is sort of funny because then you know to have a, a nun featured as one of the characters, it's sort of like okay, well I know who's going to still who's not going to be dead by the time it's over, uh, unless they uh, yeah. really surprise me. Um, but I'm yeah, just yeah. kind of fascinated by that that way that um, the way that um, participating in sexuality or or hang-ups about sexuality, all of that gets so embroiled into what needs to be punished violently Um, and you know it's not it's not unique to this film but I think it's just kind of interesting that that plays such a big role in the story
0: yeah and the way that that punishment usually happens as kind of like this perverted I I, I, not perverted um, perversion of sex in this very like pearl clutching cis H- heterosexual ma- male gaze of being penetrated by some sort of weapon in a very vulnerable way as like this kind of reoccurring trope as the way of punishing sex with further penetration of men in vulnerable situations i just i, I feel like there's like so much uh, there- there's a sheen as we're going through the Friday the 13th series a season there's like this sheen of like this very clear commentary on like this puritanical understanding of right and wrong and morality. And then there seems to be this kind of like bubbling up of this kind of queer subversive nature of like, well, what's actually happening here? Um, and there's this, th- there, there seems to be this commentary on like this by, by, I, I guess the problematic notions of the male gaze being like, these films are very clearly a male gaze. We see so much female nudity, but very little, if any, uh, male nudity, all that stuff. And yet by virtue of these films being written by male script writers and stuff, them kind of laying out their fears for all of us to see in this kind of, these like unknown fears about penetration and about what that means and about being vulnerable around other people. I just find that, to be so fascinating that we kind of get this insight into a cis male <laughs> allosexual psyche through these kind of horror films and like what kind of things are terrifying to them anyway that was a long tangent but a long aside but uh there we go uh but speaking of like punishing people for sex then billy then goes into a young couple's home and kills the kills a couple having sex and who are having sex instead of watching their child, I guess, by impelling her on antlers. And then he throws a man out the window. He asks their child, um, if the kid did anything naughty. She says no. And he gifts her with his bloody knife. He then kills two bullies. Uh one uh, one of them is this funny scene of the this kid riding down the uh snowbank on his sled, but then as he gets closer you realize he doesn't have a head anymore. Um he ends up he then of course ends up back at the orphanage uh officer barnes kills an old priest in front of these kids uh who is dressed as santa and then barnes is killed by billy billy confronts mother superior but is killed by the sheriff as billy dies he tells the kids that you're safe now because santa claus is gone um billy's younger brother ricky looks at mother superior and says naughty the end
1: and, and he says that, um, like, look, like, does that sweeping gaze where it's like, Ricky looks past the fire axe that has featured in so many of the, the killings, and then up to her, right? And there's the, there's the naughty cut. Um, it's really quite, uh, it's quite distressing. And um, it's funny, too, because I think I, I, the fire axe is foreshadowed way back in the toy store where it's pictured on the wall above the head of the store uh, manager. And I'm just like, oh yeah, a whole bunch of people are getting killed with an ax.
0: <laughs> like it, right, it wasn't
1: right. even subtle. It was just sort of like, hey, this scene's unimportant, except for the there's an ax over there.
0: <laughs> yep, yep. Um, I, I just, one of the things that's very interesting to me about this movie, too, is that it's kind of in the dying age of the great, early era of slashers. So this is one of the last slashers before Nightmare on Elm Street revitalizes it uh by like get, adding uh this kind of supernatural paranormal sense to uh slashers. But like you can tell like we're scraping the dregs of the bottle he- uh, of the barrel here for like um creative kills and stuff like that. But what they do with the story by choosing to instead of show it from like a victim's point of view and we get a final girl or something the whole time we're following the killer as the protagonist of the story I just think is very is a very kind of fresh take that we even today we don't see that frequently um, in the slasher horror genre maybe like thrillers but not quite like this
1: and and, and
0: by seeing that person's story unfold like going back to the original
1: trauma um, taking a departure from some of the other series where it's like well, Jason is just scary, right? But like several movies in you're like, well, because (laughs) right. And then there's some kind of the the backstory of why this person is so frightening um, comes in much later. Um, And all you really need to know for the the first movie in the, in the string is that they're, they are scary and bad. They're going to kill you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Interesting about Billy here. Um, I guess we're ready to move to the deep, theological stuff our deep dive into theology uh I have a few things um so first is just kind of the horror of nursing homes and orphanages especially in popular imagination but also often frequently the case in these underfunded institutions oftentimes especially when it's a sadly and historically, but even in contemporary times, when they're affiliated with a religious mm-hmm. institution, uh, we see sadly all the news about the uh, schools that even the even Juggal Lutheran Church in Canada was kind of implicated in some of this stuff, like the a lot of the schools that were killing Indigenous kids and stuff, uh, and part of instead of like doing what they're supposed to be doing, which even that was kind of this gross educating into this um western culture and indoctrination and that sort but like even but just kind of like the ways that historically all these institutions have failed to serve people and especially um how, how this guy in the nursing home like it's clear that the family is only going to visit him because it's christmas and then they immediately just leave like without spending any quality time with him um and then we have these kids literally being abused in this orphanage, and furthering this, this Billy's trauma by this like very strict authoritarian uh, mother superior figure and stuff like that. So it's just the real life horror of stuff like that, and how that plays out in these um, like all the, for instance, all the horror movies that talk about like mental institutions and stuff like that, and see those as places of horror, um, which a is problematic about we can get into Foucault here and stuff about the locking up of quote unquote undesirables and in institutions and stuff like that. And what that does to popular imagination, but even just the ways in which a lot of these institutions have not been great and don't have a great track record of actually helping people.
1: I, I was genuinely fascinated by, um, and I don't know if this was just, uh, uh, a one-off, you know, they they said something brilliant without realizing it. But the way that the character of, I think it was Sister Margaret, uh, the younger nun, um, really seemed to get that Billy was traumatized. That it was that it was, uh, you know, calendar based. It was based in his history, the experiences he's had with his family, um, the fact that the that the the violence was carried out by. Someone, you know, uh, dressed as sand. like she really actually seemed to get it in a way that so often um, is missing in this genre, Mm -hmm. where it's just Mm -hmm. sort of like, oh, yeah, well, it's just a scary, crazy person. Um, When the reality is that uh, people experiencing mental illness um, are far, far more likely to be the victims of violent crime um, or also the victims of police violence than they are to ever become, uh, you know, some sort of uh, menace to society. Um, and what I found fascinating yeah. was that, that it was necessary then to have Mother Superior push back and be like, nope, we're going to basically, we're going to beat the trauma out of him. Uh, and, and that right. her right. insistence on the discipline, whether it was the, the whipping with the belt, um, the restraints on the bed, I mean, plus that also takes us into a whole other fascinating thing about um, the fact that sex anxiety is such a big part of the film and then you have these things that are eh, like tangential to kink and bondage and stuff like that. They, they're they're right, never right. they're never presented in that way, but they're present in the story and they're they're part of this compounding factor of uh, um, you know, yeah. what's wrong with Billy.
0: Exactly. And that that's such a good segue to my um, next point that I thought of as I was watching this is the idea that Mother Superior has that discipline will help overcome trauma. Um, and, like, this, these strict punishments, like, that is the way to create a healthy child and, therefore, a healthy, productive member of society as a young adult. And, like, that clearly feeds into the trauma. And th- this story, as much as this film has a point, which I'm not sure, it is, I think it might be a stretch to say one. It has one. But, like, it seems to be very clear. Like, Bill, there were circumstances that led to Billy becoming a murderer and one of those is this kind of reoccurring trauma that he gets as he's being raised by this institution that in other other um, is supposed to be helping him and so uh, and then also, it's funny how we talked about like the way that the um, sex is punished in horror films, but we have mother superior punishing this couple for having sex. She's not even the killer. She's going in there like with a belt and whipping them um, for having sex. And then of course, like you said, tying Billy to the bed afterwards in this like very adjacent to BDSM kind of kinky way, I think. Um, But like if Billy learns right from wrong as a child, and that sex begets punishment. I mean, this is showing where he learned that from, directly from right here. Um, and so it's it very interesting to me that it, it's the film is almost kind of like making a meta commentary. And like, we're not saying sex is bad or anything. But you this is why Billy thinks sex is bad. And it's because of the way that um, this church... V- the Catholic Church at the time, and still to today, many of the churches view have this very puritanical, very like, um, compulsory heterosexual understanding of sex, and that sex can only be happen between married couples in a very particular way, um, uh, to produce children or something like that. Uh, and so it's like, so 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 I kind of like that. The, there's almost this subversive nature to this of saying like, well, this is why horror films go after people having sex so much is because of this kind of religious fascination around. So did you just like
1: unearth a point that was buried so deep in the plot that they didn't even know it was there, which is that purity culture causes psycho killers.
0: (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps. Um, And also just the, just that this is this otherwise normal looking presumably i'm going to get into my queer reading on this but like on the surface he's a cishet white guy with it who's really cute nice smile and stuff like that and of course he's the actual bad person i love when there's that kind of subversion instead of just throwing it on like oh it's a trans person as the killer like silence of the lambs or it's like something else like that but it's like no the real horror is lies behind this person
1: has a disfigured face and a limp clearly they must
0: be the killer exactly (laughs) right 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 so I, I like that I also love how many horror films show police to be incompetent this one among them because the police murder an innocent person so if there's one um, if there's one genre a film that consistently shows that that consistently has like an a cab kind of message it's definitely is definitely horror and I love that yeah the whole <laughs> the whole
1: um, you know um, shooting the unarmed Santa um Right. You know, and and not even verifying that it was the one that they were looking for.
0: Yep, yep. Um, and then the last thing I have here is just I read this whole thing as like this really queer allegory, and I'm sure this is not intended, but there's enough in here that I think I can that I think we can kind of give a very queer reading of it. Um, first of all, the when like I said, when they present adult Billy, Billy as this person that could have been a cover on a queer gay beefcake magazine in the 60s like this very like muscular good looking type of person wearing this like i already described like this very queer outfit um for the mid 80s and then for him when he at like being re- the, clearly this like suppression of a sexuality from being in a convent of or not convent a a Catholic orphanage as a kid in general, which we see when he is having this fantasy that, but it is so interesting to me that it's in this fantasy with a woman that some of his subversive, uh, not subversive, his um, subconscious kind of fears and hangups around sex come out, which we're led to believe is like about sex in general. But here he is with this woman. Clearly there's no chemistry between the, well, one of those things that we can ask is that intentional or not, but there was no chemistry between this couple making out. You can tell that like willing suspension of disbelief aside, it's like, you can tell that they're like in the studio, just making, uh, making the motions in front of the camera crew and stuff like that. Like no acting going on here at all. Cle- clearly we- not <laughs> a film that had
1: like an intimacy coordinator. Cause many of the scenes lack that, you know, actual energy.
0: Right. Right. But, but, like, within the um, text of the film itself, we're left with this, like, very lackluster fantasy that Billy is having with this woman that he clearly does not seem into. And then he gets penetrated by a knife as he's doing this. So it's like he's kind of, I feel like he's working out his, like, he's actually a bottom and he just needs to, you know, get over that and be penetrated. And then that would help relieve some of these uh, internalized homophobia and uh his internalized fear around sex and stuff like that he, he just needs um, to so, find a safe
1: santa type right not not one that wants to hurt him right right
0: yes exactly so so for me i'm just like watching this movie i'm like this movie it, billy just seems like a very queer character and uh I and i wonder like if if we were to read him as like this gay man who had or or this person with um same-sex attraction which he is not equipped to understand or deal with because of how he was raised in a uh church that at that time especially did not have any sort of discussion around sex in general but especially like education around human sexuality beyond this um uh, a man marries a woman and they have babies yay a kind of understanding of sexuality like well, and culturally over overhanging, I just feel like that, that overhanging was, all
1: of that is the aids crisis Right, right. Which which right. further, further suppressed any kind of meaningful conversation in a major way.
0: For real. For real. So, yeah. So so that's just kind of like my I feel like there's this we could kind of like piece together this queer allegory here about just being raised in a society where you're not given room to exist in the kind of ongoing um, trauma that gives you uh growing up and stuff like that, I mean most of us queer folk in fact uh the, to your point too about people uh about the way statistics bears out different than popular imagination, I mean queer people in general are much more likely to be victims of violent crime than perpetrators of violent crime, and yet there's still that like panic around like a trans person's out to kill us like in silence of the lambs and stuff, but like. So, so I'm not saying like that part of the allegory, but I'm I'm saying though like the ways in which like this, the ways in which being ill-equipped or un or not having room to really find yourself as you grow up or see people like you or experience community with other people really does cause uh, lasting trauma and pain and all those things. And so, I I feel like on there could be kind of like a meta queer commentary here as well. could could we
1: almost say something like there's this um, because it also has to do with this fracture from the parents, right. Um, By a, a figure who, you know, for better or worse, is often how people conceive of God, (laughs) right. In our popular culture, Right. right. Watching everyone all the time, spying on all your stuff and then judging you for whether or not what you did was good or bad. That on some level, I mean, Billy needs, Billy needs a God who loves and cares And Billy, on some level, needs a Santa slash daddy who actually wants to take good care (laughs) of him. Um, And part of the reason why the killing doesn't, you know, you can't stop the killing until he's killed is that he's never going to be satisfied trying to embody who he needs to take care of him. Does that make sense? Right. Right. So like he's going to go no, around doing so all this penetrating sense. and chopping and hard, you know, like so he's trying to take on the role of the yeah. one yeah. that he needs. He's not good at it. It doesn't do anything for him. And so ultimately he he ends up being stopped by this sheriff who's an older man with a handgun, Um. you know, and then yeah. finally, uh, ironically, the very end of the film, Billy's penetrated and, and then he's like, it's okay now. Yep. Yep. So there's a, and there's then- a, there's a, you know. Couch psychology view of it.
0: <laughs> right, right. It uh, another episode of Horror Nerds at Therapy as opposed to Horror Nerds at Church. <laughs> it's so interesting how like how um horror is I, I just shared a article on our um Horror Nerds at Church Facebook about like the connection between like the ways that horror allows us in a fictional safe setting to live out a lot of our deepest trauma and anxieties and stuff like that and see it played out and so so i just lo- i just love how like deeply even in like such a low grade b slasher flick as this was with clearly um not much interest in production value or interest in telling a cohesive story just trying to make a holiday slasher flick and that's it and yet, even within that, there, there's still all this um, depth to it, uh, just because I think of the nature of the genre. and Beyond
1: even the mythology, too, there's this whole um, aspect of, you know, we, we, we connect Santa Claus, right, with the historic St. Nicholas of Myrna, uh, who's a bishop uh, around the time that the creeds are written back in the life of the church. And, you know, he gets remembered as someone who rescues sailors and rescues um um, women who are about to be trafficked, and and you know, he's a very much a rescuing figure who uses his generosity to take care of others. And yet, there's also this, and you know, hard to know if it's exactly historical or not. But this story about uh, the way he took sides in a theological fight at the Council of Nicaea and walked up and punched one of the other bishops in the face <laughs> because he couldn't handle like this is like. Now, I thought you were a smart person. I thought you understood, you know, the way theology works. Uh, you're part of this other movement that I don't agree with. So pow, right? And and so even the real life, you know, kind of historical precedent for Santa has this dark side of like, you know, um, uh, if I decide you're wrong, I will stand up for it.
0: I love it. And uh, and I I think that's just so interesting, like how, uh we kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier but just like how the santa figure varies so much like culturally and locally regionally and things like that uh all presumably uh connected to this real life figure and also how he has become this uh i have to bring up my Foucault. so if you are uh playing our drinking game at home of course drink responsibly but you can take your shot because i bring up Foucault or luther one of the two people i bring up way too much on this podcast but like this panopticon notion of like santa sees everything you do right or wrong um good or bad which is very much this kind of um omniscience that we also ascribe to god and stuff like that and so it's kind of this like santa is this watered down version of god but god is doing this on like a cosmic level punishing the good uh separating the good from the bad uh the sheep from the goats and all that stuff and yet santa does this on like a very much smaller scale just around the holiday time whether he is feeding naughty children to his polar bear or he is um leaving in stockings he still is like very clearly like um, separating good from bad in some sense and, and we even get that in, in the mythology around his list and now he checks it twice and blah 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 but like so so first of all there's that piece of just this like the the mythology of santa being this like omniscient sort of being that can like that um rewards good behavior and either punishes or ignores or gives cold to bad behavior whatever the myth is and then the way in which that figure is used as kind of this discipline tactic to uh, now there's like the elf on the shelf phenomena today where like people will have the little elf somewhere hitting the house and and because the elf is like reporting back to santa the kid's behavior and stuff like that so so it's like j- just this notion of like if you're how many times that I, growing up as a kid, was told by my mom, it's like, you have to be good and sit through this. My mom is a pastor. So it's like, you have to be good and sit through these four Christmas Eve services as a four-year-old child and be like completely silent during them because that way you'll get rewarded when um with Christmas presents the next day. And just kind of like this, the weird way we use Santa as this like discipline figure and this kind of uh, 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 just... So far, I think so far removed from uh well I'm this isn't paste talking about people's parenting choices, but just the way it like uh I feel like that can that taken to an extreme is just very kind of harmful and not good toxic theology about this very kind of binary between good and bad and only certain behaviors are rewarded, certain behaviors are rewarded with coal or being fed to polar bear or being kidnapped by Krampus or something, but whatever the case may be, it's like, it, it, it just, it just feels like very problematic, toxic, binary, all the things that just, I I think, think not good. Just not good. Yeah. My, my very professional theological opinion. This is not good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's. And, and then, You want to add to a layer of that, right, which is that so there's a moral judgment made, right, about are children naughty or nice. Um, And then that gets layered with um, who gets the most presents, um, you know, in a typical American community, the people with the most money. Right, and so there's right. also like really deep subconscious stuff. Everything from Protestant work ethic to the prosperity gospel to, you know, um, um, Santa slash God as a dispenser of um, earthly blessings as proof that you're better than the people right. around you. Right. And on some level, the the I, I, I've taken part in lots of gift collections um, in a number of jobs that I've done. Um, both for foster children and for um, children that went to the school that we sponsored. So a lot of different settings. And I always think it's fascinating that um, there's this deep desire on the part of, you know, decent, generous people to make sure that all the children have something to open for Christmas precisely because they know how screwed up it is that we've told them that the kids that right. don't get anything are bad, right? And so we're right, so like, right. well, who's bad? Foster children are bad. Children whose parents in prison are bad. Children whose parents you know, don't make enough money to pay for frivolous things are bad. Um, so there's a lot that goes into kind of also the, the economic and social class um, analysis of the way we use the Santa myth
0: once you reach a certain age that kind of generosity fades away and, and if, of course there's still like socks drives and coat drives and stuff like that as soup kitchens for um impoverished people and homeless and stuff like that and yet there's still there exactly like you're saying this very like clear prosperity message around people who have a good work ethic are going to Um, to be rewarded by God. And so that's why we don't like things like food stamps or other sorts of uh, relief programs for um, people. Because once you get to a certain age, you're not a children, then all that kind of gratitude and goodwill towards children who can't help it now are old enough where they can help it. And if they just got a better job or something, that suddenly all their problems would go away well so there's that
1: piece and 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 just to kind of loop it back to the film right that that part of the way they're going to cement billy's goodness is to make sure that he has a job now that he's 18 right you know Um, and that somehow work and work in the adult world will normalize him in a way that clearly Mm -hmm. he's like way too far gone to for that to uh
0: for that to work um i can't think of it that's all good um well anything else you have for our deep theological dive no
1: i don't think so this has been um it i'm always amazed by how you know if you approach even the schlockiest of stuff <laughs> and, you, and you and you put the right lens on you can really find some really cool stuff to talk about
0: yeah i i agree that's just one of the greatest delights about this podcast uh starting this podcast project and it's like first of all there's that kind of dual thing of like what genre of film relies more on religious tropes than horror I don't think there is one like from all the exorcist films that have like very clear Christian imagery to even stuff like this which I we have the Catholic orphanage, but even like in the popular culture notions around Christmas and stuff of secular holiday, still very much rooted in, uh, Christ- Christianity. Um, and stuff. so it's just very interesting to me that, that horror just kind of, I, I, I uh, to go back to my, um, take another shot, I guess, cause I'll bring up Dairy doll now, just the way that these films kind of like unfold and deconstruct themselves as soon as we go into it, because of all the, underbelly of these films being just so full of these overarching things about like good versus evil and all that stuff and religious stuff that just we take for granted until we really kind of push it or start pulling the threads so anyway this has been such a great conversation thank you for putting out with my rambling today but this has been so so fun and you're the best this was this thank you um well to the point where we rate the film Uh, So we're still in our Friday the 13th uh, season. So we're rating it out of 10 machetes. uh, What you think this film would get? Uh, And if you have a favorite kill.
1: Okay. Uh, Well, I I gave it a six out of 10 machetes. Um, There were all kinds of obvious flaws, but some of the things like the low budget use of the homemade music and the Um, willingness to explore trauma um, and and even the fact that they saved all kinds of money on writing at the end of the film by having the only dialogue be naughty, punish. Uh, Like all of that to me was actually weirdly delightful. So I gave it six out of 10. Uh, It was a a whole turkey dinner.
0: Love it. Um, I would also probably rate it six out of 10 machetes uh, for pretty much all the same reason. Definitely like not a great film as far as like quality but just the amount of fun it is to watch and uh talk about and stuff like that uh for favorite kill, i would say the woman getting impaled on the antlers it's one of the only ones that they kept that i guess they kept in the full effect of the gore from it did you have a favorite kill i don't think you mentioned it. I, I loved the headless
1: letter um and and for a number of reasons one the i mean it was a sight gag that you could kind of see coming um, the moment the original children were on the hill with their sleds, like oh, someone's coming down the hill with a body part missing. Um, so I love the fact that it was telegraphed way, way out. Um, and I also love the fact that in this theme of of distressed couples um, that are that make up so many of the victims uh, in all of this, that uh, you have these two bullies, right, who are older children of uh, or, or or teenagers, young adults, something judging their age was kind of hard. Uh, but you have this one, you know, sort of, um, uh, boxy butch guy who's sort of the, the lead bully. And then this, uh, slender tag along with the long blonde hair. And I'm just sort of like, this is so queer. This is just coded. Like they're a couple. <laughs> right? Right. And, and, and especially when you get to the point where the, the shaggy haired blonde is flapping his arms and screaming as the headless body comes down the, uh, down the hill. Um, and so I think it's very interesting yep. that um, in that case, um, half of the couple survives, unlike some of these other scenes where everybody's massacred.
0: Um. Well, like I said, this has been such a blast. Uh, where can our listeners find you? Uh, do you have any social media stuff, any upcoming projects, anything fun like that? Yeah. Um,
1: so uh, there's a couple of places if people want to... Um, if they want to see my strong opinions and the way I retweet other activists, um, they can follow me on Twitter. That's at green mt as in mountain friar oef, at green mountain friar oef. Um, and then if people would like to follow my Tumblr um, and see uh, mostly reshares, but uh, also some original essays um, around some ace and arrow and non binary content, um, acefriar is um, uh, my Tumblr. Uh, Folks want to learn more about the community that I'm connected to uh, that's www.oeffranciscans.org. Look us up. We are uh, the uh, oldest open and affirming religious community in the United States. Um, So I think that's very cool. And then lastly, uh, if you're the kind of person that um, needs liturgical nerd resources, uh, go check out disrupt worship. Um, I had a lot of fun putting together some of the Advent prayers for that. So Uh, My work will be there uh, in the coming weeks.
0: Awesome. That's really cool. Uh, Thank you again so much for being on this episode and being our guest host for today. Our next movie is Midnight Kiss with Rivercook Needham. Um, And in between that episode and this episode, like I said, you'll find a special surprise on your feed on Christmas Day uh, as a way of saying Merry Christmas from Horror Nerds at Church to all of you. All right. Well, that's it for our show.
1: Uh, Our theme music was composed by Matt May, who along with Pace edited this episode. Horror Nerds at Church releases every Thursday. Please comment, rate, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And just remember, if you're going to get
0: somebody something for Christmas,
1: make sure it's, well, not that dangerous.
0: I love it. No giving knives to unsuspecting children. Bloodied, already used knives to unsuspecting children. Box cutters are not for children. <laughs>